Chapter One, Part Two of Constance Dunlap by Arthur B. Reeve. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Forgers continued. That night the newspapers were full of the story. There was the whole thing, exaggerated, distorted, multiplied, until they had become swindlers of millions instead of thousands. But nevertheless, it was their story. There was only one grain of consolation. It was in the last paragraph of the news item, and read, There seems to be no trace of the man and woman who worked this clever swindle, as if by a telepathic message they have vanished at just the time when their whole house of cards collapsed. They removed every vestige of their work from the apartment. Everything was destroyed. Constance even began a new watercolor, so that it might suggest that she had not laid aside her painting. They had played for a big stake and lost, but the twenty thousand dollars was something. Now the great problem was to conceal it and themselves. They had lost, yet if ever before they loved, it was as nothing to what it was now that they had tasted together the bitter and the sweet of their mutual crime. Carlton went down to the office the next day, just as before, the anxious hours that his wife had previously spent thinking whether he might betray himself by some slip were comparative safety as contrasted with the uncertainty of the hours now. But the first day after the alarm of the discovery passed off all right. Carlton even discussed the case, his case, with those in the office, commented on it, condemned the swindlers, and carried it off, he felt proud to say, as well as Constance herself might have done, had she been in his place. Another day passed. His account of the first day, reassuring as it had been to her, did not lessen the anxiety. Yet never before had they seemed to be bound together by such ties as knitted their very souls in this crisis. She tried with a devotion that was touching to impart to him some of her own strength to ward off detection. It was the afternoon of the second day that a man who gave the name of Drummond called and presented a card of the Reynolds Company. "'Have you ever been paid a little bill of twenty-five dollars by our company?' he asked. Down in his heart, Carlton knew that this man was a detective. "'I can't say without looking it up,' he replied." Carlton touched a button, and an assistant appeared. Something outside himself seemed to nerve him up, as he asked, "'Look up our account with Reynolds and see if we have been paid. What is it? A bill for twenty-five dollars. Do you recall it?' "'Yes, I recall it,' replied the assistant. "'No, Mr. Dunlap, I don't think it has been paid. It is a small matter, but we sent them a duplicate bill yesterday. I thought the original must have gone astray.' Carlton cursed him inwardly for sending the bill but then he reasoned it was only a question of time, after all, when the forgery would be discovered. Drummond dropped into a half-confidential, half-quizzing tone. "'I thought not. Somewhere along the line that check has been stolen and raised to twenty-five thousand dollars,' he remarked. "'Is that so?' gasped Carlton, trying hard to show just the right amount of surprise, and not too much. "'Is that so?' "'No doubt you have read in the papers of this clever realty company swindle,' Well, it seems to have been part of that. I'm sure that we shall be glad to do it all in our power to cooperate with Reynolds, put in Dunlap. I thought you would, commented Drummond dryly. I may as well tell you that I fear someone has been tampering with your mail. Tampering with our mail? repeated Dunlap, aghast. Impossible. Nothing is impossible until it is proved so, answered Drummond, looking him straight in the eyes. Carlton did not flinch. He felt a new power within himself, gained during the past few days of new association with Constance. 
for her he could face anything. But when Drummond was gone, he felt as he had on the night when he had finally realized that he could never cover up the deficit in his books. With an almost superhuman effort, he gripped himself. Interminably, the hours of the rest of the day dragged on. That night, he sank limp into a chair on his return home. "'A man named Drummond was in the office today, my dear,' he said. "'Someone in the office sent Reynolds a duplicate bill, and they know about the check.' "'Well, I wonder if they suspect me.' "'If you act like that, they won't suspect. They'll arrest,' she commented sarcastically. He had braced up again into his new self at her words, but there was again that sinking sensation in her heart, as she realized that it was, after all, herself on whom he depended, that it was she who had been the will, even though he had been the intellect, of their enterprise. She could not overcome the feeling that, if only their positions could be reversed, the thing might even yet be carried through. Drummond appeared again at the office the next day. There was no concealment about him now. He said frankly that he was from the Burr Detective Agency, whose business it was to guard the banks against forgeries. "'The penwork, or as we detectives call it, the penning,' he remarked, "'in the case of that check is especially good. It shows rare skill.' but the pitfalls in this forgery game are so many that, in avoiding one, a forger, ever so clever, falls into another. Carlton felt the polite third degree as he proceeded. Nowadays the forger has science to contend with, too. The microscope and camera may come in a little too late to be of practical use in preventing the forger from getting his money at first, but they come in very neatly later in catching him. What the naked eye cannot see in this check they reveal." Besides, a little iodine vapor brings out the original greening company on it. We have found out also that the protective coloring was restored by watercolor. That was easy. Where the paper was scratched and the sizing taken off, it has been painted with a resinous substance to restore the glaze to the eye. Well, a little alcohol takes that off, too. Oh, the amateur forger may be the most dangerous kind, because the professional regularly follows the same line, leaves tracks, has associates. But— he concluded impressively. All are caught, sooner or later. Sooner or later. Dunlop managed to maintain his outward composure admirably. Still, the little lifting of the curtain on the hidden mysteries of the new detective art produced its effect. They were getting closer, and Dunlap knew it, as Drummond intended he should. And, as in every crisis, he turned naturally to Constance. Never had she meant so much to him as now. That night, as he entered the apartment, he happened to glance behind him. In the shadow down the street, a man dodged quickly behind a tree. The thing gave him a start. He was being watched. "'There is just one thing left,' he cried excitedly as he hurried upstairs with the news. "'We must both disappear this time.' Constance took it very calmly. "'But we must not go together,' she added quickly, her fertile mind, as ever, hitting directly on a plan of action. "'If we separate,' They will be less likely to trace us, for they will never think we would do that. It was evident that the words were being forced out by the conflict of common sense and deep emotion. Perhaps it will be best for you to stick to your original plan of going west. I shall go to one of the winter resorts. We shall communicate only through the personal column of the star. Sign yourself Weston. I shall sign Easton. The words fell on Carlton with his new and deeper love for her like a death sentence. It had never entered his mind that they were to be separated now, dissolve their partnership in crime. To him it seemed as if they had just begun to live 
since that night when they had at last understood each other, and it had come to this, separation. "'A man can always shift for himself better if he has no impediments,' she said, speaking rapidly, as if to bolster up her own resolution. "'A woman is always an impediment in a crisis like this.' In her face he saw what he had never seen before. There was love in it that would sacrifice everything. She was sending him away from her, not to save herself, but to save him. Vainly he attempted to protest. She placed her finger on his lips. Never before had he felt such an overpowering love for her, and yet she held him in check in spite of himself. "'Take enough to last a few months,' she added hastily. "'Give me the rest. I can hide it and take care of myself. Even if they trace me, I can get off. A woman can always do that more easily than a man. Don't worry about me. Go somewhere. Start a new life. If it takes years, I will wait. Let me know where you are.' We can find some way in which I can come back into your life. No, no. Carlton had caught her passionately in his arms. Even that cannot weaken me. The die is cast. We must go. She tore herself away from him and fled into her room, where, with set face and ashen lips, she stuffed article after article into her grip. With a heavy heart, Carlton did the same. The bottom had dropped out of everything, yet try as he would to reason it out, he could find no other solution but hers. To stay was out of the question, if indeed it was not already too late to run. To go together was equally out of the question. Constance had shown that. Seek the woman was the first rule of the police. As they left the apartment, they could see a man across the street following them closely. They were shadowed. In despair, Carlton turned toward his wife. A sudden idea had flashed over her. There were two taxicabs at the station on the corner. "'I will take the first, she whispered. "'Take the second and follow me. Then he cannot trace us.' They were off, leaving the baffled shadow only time to take the numbers of the cab. Constance had thought of that. She stopped, and Carlton joined her. After a short walk, they took another cab. He looked at her inquiringly, but she said nothing. In her eyes he saw the same fire that blazed when she had asked him if there was no way to avoid discovery, and had suggested it herself in the forgery. He reached over and caressed her hand. She did not withdraw it, but her averted eyes told that she could not trust even herself too far. As they stood before the gateway to the steps that led down into the long under-river tunnel that was to swallow them so soon and project them each into a new life, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles apart, Carlton realized as never before what it all had meant. He had loved her through all the years, but never with the wild love of the past two weeks. Now there was nothing but blackness and blankness. He felt as though the hand of fate was tearing out his wildly beating heart. She tried to smile at him bravely. She understood. For a moment she looked at him in the old way, and all the pent-up love that would have, that had done and dared everything for him, struggled in her rapidly rising and falling breast. It was now or never. She knew it, the supreme effort. One word or look too many from her, and all would be lost. She flung her arms about him and kissed him. Remember, one week from today, a personal, in the star, she panted. She literally tore herself from his arms, gathered up her grip, and was gone. A week passed. The quiet little woman at the Ocean View house was still as much a mystery to the other guests as when she arrived, travel-stained and worn with the repressed emotion of her sacrifice. She had appeared to show no interest in anything, to take her meals mechanically, 
to stay most of the time in her room, never to enter into any of the recreations of the famous winter resort. Only once a day did she portray the slightest concern about anything around her. That was when the New York papers arrived. Then she was always first at the newsstand, and the boy handed out to her, as a matter of habit, the star. Yet no one ever saw her read it. Directly afterward she would retire to her room. There she would pore over the first page, reading and rereading every personal in it. Sometimes she would try reading them backward and transposing the words, as if the message they contained might be in the form of a cryptograph. The strain and the suspense began to show on her. Day after day passed, until it was nearly two weeks since the parting in New York. Day after day she grew more worn by worry and fear. What had happened? In desperation she herself wired a personal to the paper. Weston, write me at the Ocean View, Easton. For three days she waited for an answer. Then she wired the personal again. Still there was no reply, and no hint of reply. Had they captured him? Or was he so closely pursued that he did not dare to reply, even in the cryptic manner on which they had agreed? She took the file of papers which she kept, and again ran through the personals, even going back to the very day after they had separated. Perhaps she had missed one, though she knew that she could not have done so, for she had looked at them a hundred times. Where was he? Why did he not answer her message in some way? No one had followed her. Were they centering their efforts on capturing him? She haunted the newsstand in the lobby of the beautifully appointed hotel. Her desire to read newspapers grew. She read everything. It was just two weeks since they had left New York on their separate journeys when, on the evening of another newsless day, she was passing the newsstand. From force of habit she glanced at an early edition of an evening paper. The big black type of the heading caught her eye. Noted forger a suicide. With a little shriek, half-suppressed, she seized the paper. It was Carlton. There was his name. He had shot himself in a room in a hotel in St. Louis. She ran her eye down the column, hardly able to read. In heavier type than the rest was the letter they had found on him. My dearest Constance, when you read this, I, who have wronged and deceived you beyond words, will be where I can no longer hurt you. Forgive me, for by this act I am a confessed embezzler and forger. I could not face you and tell you of the double life I was leading, so I have sent you away and have gone away myself, and may the Lord have mercy on the soul of your devoted husband, Carlton Dunlap. Over and over again she read the words, as she clutched at the edge of the newsstand to keep from fainting. Wronged and deceived you, the double life I was leading. What did he mean? Had he after all been concealing something else from her? Had there really been another woman? Suddenly the truth flashed over her. Tracked and almost overtaken, lacking her hand which had guided him, he had seen no other way out, and in his last act he had shouldered it all on himself, had shielded her nobly from the penalty, had opened wide for her the only door of escape. End of chapter 1